Hello, everyone. Red Coat here. And Sienta joins him. And we've got another podcast for you. This time, we're digging into competitive environments and looking at ways to try and understand them better, both individually and on the whole. For today, we'll specifically be looking at the structure of competitive environments. Our next podcast will be delving into how to manage and adapt competitive environments, but we can't do that without understanding the different types of environments and what makes them tick. The first step to doing this is to make sure we're actually looking at a competitive environment because competitive environments and non-competitive environments function differently. You may at first think that this is obvious, and often it is. However, there are games that have competition in them without necessarily trying to gear themselves towards making a competitive environment. We call these types of games party games. If the players want to, they can always turn a party game into a competitive game, but games made for that purpose have a different focus than one that is made to be a competitive environment. This is because party games are geared towards creating story moments, those occasions that people tell stories about and get a good laugh from. This means that party games often have a lot of random elements, and they don't need tight balance because the focus isn't about determining who the best player is, but around creating these story moments. In general, players who want a party game and players who want a competitive environment are at cross-purposes to each other when it comes to what they want out of their gaming experience. If a game appeals to both, there will often be a very intense divide between these two types of players. One of the best examples of this is the Super Smash Bros. series. These games were likely initially created to be party games. Wacky sages with random elements and items point to this. However, the ability to turn items off and stages without random elements allowed these games to also be played competitively. This divide exacerbated in Super Smash Bros. Melee, which really saw the competitive Smash Bros. community expand and grow. This divide is fundamentally about what the players find fun being incompatible. For the party players, the wacky stages and swingy items are a lot of fun because they create the sort of narrative moments that they enjoy. But those elements undermine serious competitive determination, which is a key part of the fun for competitive players. This means we have two communities with not only different, but outright incompatible definitions of fun. I've gone on a bit long here, but the point is that the first thing you have to figure out is whether or not the game you are making is supposed to create a competitive environment or a party one, because the needs of each type of environment are very different and often work against each other. For today, we're only going to be looking into competitive environments. So then, we have the question. What do we have to gain from understanding the structures that competitive environments can come in? Other than a good conversation, of course. On the whole, having an understanding of what defines a competitive environment structure can be a big boon when it comes to the development of games where players can compete against each other. It can help with focusing the experience of the game in ways that help promote and reward good play. It can also help unveil some of the many ways your players will find to play your game allowing you, the developer, to provide tools to let them play in these manners, as well as cues to help them discover these methods of play. There are many other benefits to understanding the structure of your competitive environment, but we'll focus in on those after laying out some of the defining elements that can govern your competing players. So when looking at the ways that competitive environments can vary, there is one very big question that will help define a great deal of how it is experienced by the players that compete in it. How do you win? Games can vary wildly in their victory conditions, but at the end of the day, they can, for the most part, be sequestered into one of two categories. The best performance type, wherein the first player to achieve some sort of victory condition is the victor, and the last player standing type, wherein the last player to avoid losing is the victor. It may seem like an oversimplification at first, 
but almost every game that we can think of falls into one of these two categories, their structures differing drastically because of it. Let's start by looking at the best performance type of games. As Redcoat said, with these sorts of games, a winner is determined by, well, winning. Everyone else loses as a result. This contrasts with last player standing, wherein there are lose conditions, and the last player that hasn't yet lost wins. So, back to best performance games. These usually come in two major forms, first to a goal or highest score. In first to a goal style best performance games, a winner is determined when a player reaches some goal. Races are a classic example of this, with the first place winning position being determined as soon as someone crosses the finish line. In the second type, highest score, every player does their best, and then those bests are compared to determine who did the bestest. With this type, you can't define a goal for the players to simultaneously move towards. Often, this is because each player can effectively move the goalposts by doing well. Olympic sports that feature solo performances such as figure skating, shot put, and the long jump fall into the high score category of best performance games, as each player has a chance to do their personal best, and after all of the competitors have finished their attempts, the points earned are compared to each other to determine the winner. This is in contrast to sports like track, stock car racing, and swim meets that feature tandem performances, where each of the players are performing simultaneously to reach a goal before the others. Here, the victor is determined by who reaches the goal, or in some cases completes a task, first. The big difference is the simultaneous aspect. In a high-score scenario, everyone gets a turn to try their best at the thing, and regardless of the performance of any given player, the contest continues until everyone is done, as a victor cannot be determined until all competitors have completed or failed to complete their task. Whereas, in a first-to-goal scenario, the victor can be determined as soon as the first competitor completes the task or reaches the goal, meaning that after the first player finishes, we know who the winner of the contest is. Note that this still applies even when there is a placing system, as the overall winner is still the first one to attain victory, even if second and third place may change after first place has been determined. Here are some examples of first-to-goal type best performance games. F-Zero, Star Wars Episode One Podracer. These two racing games, like most racing games, are obviously first-to-goal type games. Guild Wars 1 Alliance Battles. In this mode, two teams compete to get 500 points before the other team by holding nodes that generate points and by defeating members of the other team. The focus, however, is still on getting to a goal before everyone else, and a loser isn't determined until one team wins. And here are some examples of highest score best performance games. Golf. Okay, technically this is lowest score, but the idea applies. Bowling. Super Smash Bros. in timed mode. In timed mode, everyone keeps on competing until time is called, and the winner is determined at that time based on who has the most points. Sure, it is mostly zero-sum, but you're still trying to get the highest score, not avoid losing. So now let's dig a bit deeper into the last player standing type of competitive environment. In the case of this sort of game, victory is achieved by not losing, i.e. the player who does not make a specific mistake or requisite amount of mistakes before the other players do is the victor. By the nature of what they are, these games tend to emphasize player interaction, often allowing players to affect each other's play states and situations with the actions they take over the course of the game. This can be looked at as a kind of sliding scale, going from dice games like Yahtzee, where the players have no ability to interact with each other, to fighting games like Tekken, 
where victory or loss is entirely determined by what you do to the other player and how you respond to their actions. These interactions between players can be looked at on two levels, the psychological and the functional. Many games employ both elements when it comes to player interactions. However, the leanings toward one or the other varies from game to game. Games like Rock, Paper, Scissors and Poker focus almost primarily on the psychological aspect of player interaction, with most of the complexities of the game coming from how the players process information given to them by other players' actions, and using that information to decide what action is best for them to take next. It is important to note that in these games, the players can do little to adversely affect the opponent, as the player usually has very little they can do to force the opponent to lose. Rather, it is up to the opponent to make the decision that loses them the game, such as betting on the wrong hand or choosing rock when they should have chosen paper. Conversely, we have games that lean more towards the functional aspect, such as boxing, arm wrestling, or tug of war. In these games, the focus is more on the actions and reactions that occur when the players play, rather than the processing of information related to said actions. In games that lean towards this direction, players can actually force their opponents to lose by playing the game well at a functional level. For instance, when playing tug-of-war, a team performs well at the game by pulling on the rope really, really hard. This naturally makes the game harder for their opponents, as they must attempt to resist being pulled in by pulling harder on their end. Here, there isn't much of a psychological aspect, as there are very few critical decisions to be made when it comes to the action of pulling the rope harder. There is no mind game that determines victory or loss based on an opponent's decision. Rather, only how much better or worse they execute on the game's intrinsic function can be affected, which is, in this case, pulling the rope real hard. In general, it is often in these sorts of games that a great deal can be done to adversely affect the opponent and limit their options for functional success through effective play. It should be noted that while there are a few outliers that have little to no psychological aspect or little to no functional aspect, most last player standing games actually have both aspects to them. This is especially true as they become more complicated in governing rules and broader in the ways that players are allowed to approach playing them. Electronic fighting games, in particular, tend to fall squarely in the middle of this space, requiring both functional effectiveness and psychological acumen to consistently achieve victory against others. This sort of direct player interaction is easy to associate exclusively with last player standing type games, but it actually does show up in best performance games, often high score ones, though not always. This is most commonly seen in traditional sports. In these sorts of games, such as soccer or football, it is the team with the most points at the end that wins. This is actually very similar to the Guild Wars 1 Alliance Battles example that you may recall me mentioning in this section on best performance games. Remember that the line between best performance and last player standing has to do with how victory is determined. In these sports games, victory is determined by who got the most points, not by one of the two teams losing. That's why they're best performance games and not last player standing games. Here are some examples of last player standing games. Super Smash Bros. Stock Mode. In this mode, you lose when you run out of lives. The goal is to make everyone else run out of lives and therefore lose. The player, or team, that wins is the one that hasn't run out. Pokemon. The goal is to faint all of the other players' Pokemon so they can't keep fighting. Guild Wars 1, GVG, and Random Arenas are all about defeating the other team. In the former, by taking down the Guild Lord NPC, and in the latter, taking out the entire opposing team. In both cases, a loss condition is triggered, and the team that didn't lose wins. Dark Souls PvP. 
Because one player is going to die unless the invader gets bored and leaves, which is also a type of forfeit. Magic the Gathering. Magic has several lose conditions, but the only win condition is everyone else losing, usually. Starcraft 1 and 2. If you have no base, you lose. If your opponent loses, you win! Now that we've looked at the two big categories that these games can come in, we can do a bit more to further define individual game types and implementations by looking at the skills that competitive games test. Most of how a competitive game is structured and what it attempts to do to create an enjoyable play experience for its players comes from the types of skills that it tests its participating players on. When looking at competitive games and the skills that they test their players on, we've come up with various categories of skills that these games tend to ask players to employ. Specifically, we have physical skills, cognitive skills, logistics, adaptability, and intuition. It should be noted that adaptability and intuition are special in that they are skills that improve the way that other skills function, but we'll get into that when we tackle those two skills in specific. Let's talk about these skills in more detail, starting with physical skills. These skills have to do with physically performing actions. While this can be very obvious for physical games where you have to do things like run, jump, throw objects, kick things, etc., they also can be important for digital games. In the digital space, physical skills are all about manipulating your controller to perform the actions you want with both consistency and good timing. As such, they are critical for winning in any game where they matter, which are generally going to be any real-time games, such as real-time strategy games like StarCraft, first-person shooters like Overwatch, MOBAs like Defense of the Ancients, or fighting games like Street Fighter. Cognitive skill-based games test the player's ability to find answers to questions posed to them through the natural course of play. This can be things as simple as direct questions like what year did World War I happen in that are often featured in quiz games and game shows. It can also be things as complex as how do I want to approach defeating this opponent in fighting games like Street Fighter and real-time strategy games like StarCraft. The skills tested here relate to the player's ability to identify and understand what information or actions they need to take to complete the game successfully, how quickly they can find that information in their brain and how effectively they can arrange it into a proper plan of attack, such that they can achieve victory with those actions. Using the game show example, the cognitive test manifests as the player processing the question given to them, finding the answer in their brain, and then arranging that answer into a verbal format that they believe the game show host will understand to be the correct answer. Chess is a great example of the more strategic form of cognitive test, where the player accesses their understanding of the rules and knowledge of different possible board states and strategies to decide what moves will bring them closer to victory and what overarching strategy they want to play towards to defeat their opponent. For one last example of the cognitive test, we take a look at the fighting game example. Here, the cognitive test manifests as the player accessing their knowledge of their opponent's chosen character cross-referencing it with the knowledge they have of their own chosen character, and deciding what kind of approach they want to take when fighting their opponent in the match. We next have logistics skills. These skills are similar to cognitive skills in that they have to do with thinking, but in this case the emphasis is placed primarily on managing resources. It turns out that doing this can be quite complicated, depending upon the game in question. Managing resources is largely composed of three sub-skills, prioritization, allocation, and optimization. With prioritization, the player is being tested on their ability to figure out what matters most. That is, what are the resources that matter and what are they building towards? 
With allocation, the player is being tested on their ability to both figure out what they can do with their resources, as well as actually doing stuff with those resources. And with optimization, the player is being tested on their ability to use the resources as efficiently as possible. That is, how can they use the resources to do the most stuff? These three things become particularly interesting and complex when you have overlapping or competing resources. When this happens, prioritization becomes incredibly important, as you have to be able to figure out what matters most among all the things you could do. I use Magic the Gathering as an example. While Magic has a lot of resources, I'm going to focus on two for the moment, lands and cards in hand. Lands allow the player to produce a temporary resource called mana, which is used to pay the cost to do various things in the game. For this example, play cards from your hand. Those cards in hand are another resource which gets automatically refilled at the rate of one card per turn. Optimizing these resources looks different. Because lands produce mana each turn, and that mana effectively goes to waste if you don't use it, optimizing your mana use means using all of your mana every turn. However, optimizing cards in hand means only playing them when what you get out of playing the card provides the maximum possible return on investment of that resource. This means you have to figure out which is better, optimizing mana but using a card suboptimally, or not playing a card in order to use it optimally later but wasting mana by not using it. Sometimes the optimal thing to do is optimize both lands and cards in hand, but often it isn't that easy. You have to pick one over the other. Sometimes which one is better is clear, and sometimes it isn't. In these cases, the fate of the game can hinge on such decisions. What can be particularly challenging, however, is identifying such situations. It can be very easy to get into a mode of trying to optimize one resource over the other and therefore make overall less logistically sound plays because the other resource isn't being valued highly enough. Another more nuanced example, focusing more on resource allocation, comes from StarCraft II, a real-time strategy game. In this game, you have to collect resources from designated resource nodes, which are typically grouped together at various map locations. These get referred to as bases. When figuring out where to put a new base, it is useful to consider how expensive it will be to defend that base. You want to optimize the cost efficiency of your defense so that you get overall a higher quantity of resources from your new base, as the more resources you have to dedicate to defending it, the more expensive that base is, and the less overall effective resources you get from owning it. Therefore, it is very important to analyze the possible base locations and claim them in a way that helps you optimize this defensive spending. In mid-2017, in one of the matchups, Zerg vs. Terran, on the map Abyssal Reef, the Zerg players began to realize that the location they'd been traditionally setting up the third base in was quite vulnerable to certain types of Terran attacks particularly airborne attacks, as the position was quite narrow. Terran units are very good at using narrow spaces, while Zerg units often want open areas in order to be able to attack from all sides. Thus, some Zerg players began to use a different possible location for their third base. While this location is a bit further away from their starting location than the previously used third base location, it has a different angle and a broader area of approach. This makes it easier for the Zerg player to flank Terran armies. It also puts the Zerg base in a line, which makes it harder for the Terran to get from one base to another quickly when using air when compared to the previous location. This makes the different third base location more defensible and thus more resource efficient, as fewer resources have to be spent on both defending it as well as repairing it when damaged. Logistics also has to do with both long-term resource planning as well as short-term resource allocation. In general, allocating resources towards the long-term is better if the short-term can be ignored but when it can't, you must employ logistics skills to figure out which long-term goals to sacrifice or delay in order to attend to immediate short-term needs. As an example, if you're being attacked on StarCraft II by a bunch of enemy units, you probably need to allocate your resources towards your own units to fend with, rather than spending them on new buildings or upgrades or saving them for more powerful late-game units.
Now we get to the first of the special skills, intuition. Intuition is unique in that it is applied to the other three previous skills, cognition, physicality, and logistics, and can even be applied to the last skill of adaptation. In essence, intuition is the ability to speed up your capacity to use other skills, to the point where your thoughts and actions are no longer characterized by words. The most commonly thought of example of this is the ability to make snap decisions when it comes to cognitive and logistical actions, quickly settling upon an effective plan of attack or assessing your current resources and how you need to use them in a split second. In both cases, the process of deciding what to do could be done in a slower, more methodical way, with the player stepping through and visualizing all of the relevant information and projecting out the different outcomes in their head at a deliberate pace. Intuition allows this process to take place in such a way that the player comes upon the decision without stepping through each individual portion of the process, as their familiarity with the situation they are approaching allows them to already have answers formulated for the task at hand, as they have already gone through the thought process many times before. The same idea applies to physicality as well, as any complex action usually takes concerted effort to learn how to do, and often requires focus both physically and mentally to execute it for the first time. However, after executing the action many times, the body gains muscle memory and will be able to take the action on command much more easily, as the body's owner no longer has to focus energy into the act of figuring out how to do the action. They've already formulated the method by which the action is executed in the past, so now all that is required is for the body to access that method, which takes significantly less time. It should be noted that intuition should not be confused with habit. Intuition posits that the player in question is thinking very quickly and making quick but educated decisions based on previous experiences to take the best action. Habit is the act of making a decision because it is what the player has done in the past, not because it is the best course of action to take in the current scenario. This comes from a similar place that intuition does, as it is based on what the player has done in previous situations. However, it lacks the qualitative aspect of situation recognition and decision-making that comes with properly trained intuition. In essence, habit is, that happened, I do this now. Intuition is, that happened, so I should do this now. The difference is the should that gives a statement of how qualitatively sound the next action the player takes will be. It should be noted that this is very closely related to adaptability, which Sientir will be going into next. Like intuition skills, adaptation skills are applied to the main three skill types of physical, cognitive, and logistic. Adaptation skills are all about being able to adapt and have to do with the two aspects of adapting, recognizing that a change needs to be made and then appropriately changing in response to that need. For example, you may realize that your plan of attack isn't working. Perhaps the opponent is employing some strategy that beats yours. In cases like these, you must first recognize that your opponent's strategy is beating your strategy. You then have to figure out how you can change your strategy. Then you have to change it. For example, you may be playing very aggressively, but your opponent is defending extremely well and is therefore coming out ahead on your exchanges. You need to recognize what your position is, figure out how you can change what you're doing, perhaps by becoming less aggressive and using your resources to defend rather than attack, and then you need to enact that change. Adaptation is often tested in games that have things that force the player to react to them. Magic the Gathering, and most card games, do this by providing you a random assortment of cards to use to play. In these card game cases, what you are often adapting is your logistics, 
You likely have a specific plan of attack in mind that you intend to employ, and need to figure out how to do that given the resources available to you. The game can also present a different scenario to you that requires you to approach things differently. For example, Super Smash Bros. games often have stages that change or present hazards. With these, you often need to adapt your strategy or movements to account for these changes. As an alternative example, drafting, such as booster drafting and magic, requires you to adapt to what you have available to you both logistically and cognitively. It can be easy to not recognize adaptation skills because they are often tested through random elements, but the ability to respond to changing situations or adapt to the unknown and unpredictable is a very real skill. So now that we have these different categories of competitive games and definitions regarding the skills that they test, how can we use this information to our advantage? Firstly, knowing if your game is a last player standing type or best performance type will help you better understand the type of audience your game will attract, as the emotions and scenarios that arise from the two types are very different, oftentimes being attractive to some players and alienating to others. Understanding this at a core level can help you steer your game's design towards audiences that will better enjoy the experience that your game presents. Knowing your game type when combined with an understanding of the types of skills your game tests will give you a better understanding of the kinds of challenges that can be presented to your players such that they will be likely to respond positively. For instance, if a game focuses primarily on tests of physical dexterity and rhythm, i.e. physical skill, it may not be wise to add a long-form thought puzzle to the game that focuses entirely on cognitive skill. In the case of such an implementation, the players that were drawn to the game in the first place may be turned off by the sudden change of tested skills. This isn't to say, of course, that testing a mixture of skills is a bad idea. Rather, it is important to balance the types of tests presented within the game so that the players don't feel like they weren't properly prepared for them. This knowledge also helps with marketing your game, as by knowing what skills are tested and how the game is structured from a competitive standpoint, you'll know what aspects of your game to highlight as enjoyable and attractive to prospective players looking for a new experience. This can greatly help with getting the game into the hands of the people who love the experience it provides, and also better provide the players that try out your game with a starting point from which to approach it. Studying these concepts also helps you anticipate what base skills players will need to develop to play at an engaging level, that is, well enough that they feel like they have the chance to get better, as well as what strategies are likely to be developed. Coming up with what are likely for both of these is notably helpful when it comes to preparing tutorial content as well as how to design any AI players you may intend to have. As an example, a game that has heavy resource management element, like StarCraft II or Magic the Gathering, will likely develop strategies based around different ways of managing these resources. In these types of games, you often run into scenarios where focusing just slightly more on developing your economy than your opponent puts you in a winning situation, while focusing too much more on your economy leaves you horribly vulnerable to aggressive play. This means such resource management games typically develop slow controlling strategies as well as fast aggressive ones. Knowing this allows you to prepare players for these strategies to develop, or allows you to deny specific types of tools if you want to incentivize one style of play over another. Finally. Knowing what skills are tested by your game and what competitive structure it fits into can make it easier for you as a developer to interpret user feedback by granting you a means by which to parse both praise and complaints into actionable decisions that can be made to improve the overall experience that your game presents. It can also help you anticipate and prepare for potential user complaints, as knowing what skills are tested can tell you what things may prove difficult or nearly impossible for players to do. 
This can also give you a starting point on what you can do to better prepare players for the challenges your game presents and help determine if certain complaints from those players need to be addressed at all. That wraps it up for understanding competitive environments. Next time we'll use this knowledge as we dig into managing both these types of environments as well as the competitors themselves. Until then, this is CNTier, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.